Well, you know, rejection. Everybody has experienced it at some level or another. Rejection has its reasons. Sometimes valid, sometimes not so valid. You've probably experienced it in different cases. Sometimes where you go, I don't understand the reason you're pulling away from me. Or you said no. I've been declined. For instance, a mortgage application. Uh, you might apply for one and hear back, hey, you're not, you're not going to get it. And you inquire later and you find out it's credit score. You find out the credit score. You find out your credit has been messed with. And you, anybody ever go through some of that kind of stuff? Or maybe uh, a college application. And you check for the different reasons. Or driver's license. And you take it and you failed the parallel park just right. Or paying for a meal with a credit card. You ever done this where you, you know, you're with some guests and you go, yeah, I'll take care of it. And you hand it to it and, then, and, that, and the waiter or the wait staff comes up to you kind of, um, it's been declined. Rejected. Or maybe you uh, remember as a kid or maybe you as a kid here today know what it's like when you go to a theme park like a valley Fairly fair, and, and you want to go on a ride, and you get up to the ride, and you find out you're just an inch too short. Rejected. Or maybe you have one who has loved you. A husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And you got that Dear John letter, or you got that uh, phone call, or today a text message. The worst form of rejection. Well, see, rejection does have its reasons. It's really interesting that when we come to this portion of Scripture in Matthew 12, Matthew 11 is all about the responses, and there's different responses, but there is now at this point rejection among the religious community and, and then even many others in the community on the cities that Jesus w- was in. Jesus had actually brought God's presence through the Holy Spirit. And both Jesus... And the presence of God through the Holy Spirit were rejected. And there were reasons. There were reasons for this rejection. There might be in your own life areas where God wants to be more involved and more engaged. And and as he moves into that, you, you close the door and you reject the presence of God and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in that area. And it's really important to find out why. It may be that um, God in many different ways wants to come through the presence of His Holy Spirit. What's interesting is we've gone through chapter um, 11 before this. It's not just individuals, it's actual groups. Religious groups, Pharisees, scribes, Herodians, political groups. And even cities, Chorazin, Capernaum. Bethsaida, eventually Jerusalem. Have you ever thought that in some way you could individually be limiting the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, Jesus' involvement in your life, or maybe your family, or maybe a group that you're engaged with, or maybe a part of this, maybe this community. And God gets rejection. That's what I want us to consider. Let's pray. Father, I believe 
as we have prayed this National Day of Repentance, this kind of interesting 10-10-10 time in history. We are really praying that you and your presence would freely move in our nation, but God, for it to happen there, it has to happen in our communities, in, in our churches, and in, in our individual lives. And so, God, may we better understand what it means to receive and to walk with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And let me give you a little background of what's been happening. Because the rejection that Jesus experienced didn't just happen one day out of the blue, out of nowhere. In fact, as you read through Matthew, you see there was this growing, rising sense of popularity as Jesus was this miracle worker, incredible teacher. And as a result of what was going on, uh, the, the, the schools of the Pharisees, a number of different ones, and some of the scribes and, and, and other leaders were sent to kind of make sure that this Jesus rabbi guy is really in line. And maybe he could be, possibly... The one that was promised that would have the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God on his life. But as you read through it, you'll see about chapter 9, you'll see there are what I would call some initial rejections, hesitations as they surface. There's a healing of a paralytic. And it says that men so desperate for God's mercy on this man carry him and they... They, they open a roof and they lower him down. And Jesus looks at the man and he, and he says, take heart, son. As he looks at their faith who brought him and he says, take heart, son. Your, your sins are forgiven. And at this, some of the teachers go, oh, this, this is outside our understanding. This fellow is blaspheming. And so knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? What's easier to do? Say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk. And for God, it's much easier to, to heal someone physically than it is for him to change their hearts. Because changing of the hearts really requires your participation. And it requires the death of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is so willing to offend the mind of people. He's willing to offend your mind of what you think should be the way things are, what you've learned all your life, what you may have understood to be really good, godly traditions, and He's willing to come in and offend your mind to save your soul, to open up more of your life to His presence. So Matthew's party, chapter 9, verse 11, a little bit further. They're, they're upset because Jesus is hanging around with a bunch of riffraff. He's hanging out with these people who are clearly sinners. You know, they're the kind of people that make you uncomfortable by their lifestyle. And so they go, why does your rabbi eat with these tax collectors and, and, and sinners? You can, they, they have a hard time even saying it. And then two blind men, Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, the Pharisees begin to form their opinion to Jesus and his power and the crowd, it says, was amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel. But the Pharisees said, 
It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And they are forming their opinion. And opposition begins now to coalesce. And so that you see Jesus sending out his disciples in chapter 10. And they receive some rejection. They receive some receptions in certain places. But in chapter 11, you now see the formation of how people are beginning to process. And one of the greatest prophets begins to honestly question. And then some others begin to complain and criticize every way God comes to them. Every way, whether it's in a sad way or a glad way. They, they begin to complain and they stand on the outside and they merely criticize. They will not engage. And then there's some with amused indifference and he talks to these cities and he says, unbelievable, if these miracles would have been performed here in, in, in the worst of the city that you can imagine, Sodom, there would have been a huge revival. And he comes to the very end, just before chapter 12, which we're going to look at today, and he says, here is the kind of heart that comes before me. It's the kind of heart, as I talked about last week, that comes crawling into the presence, kneeling, begging, personally coming and saying, have mercy on me, God, I do not deserve your presence in my life. I want your presence in my life, not just here, but in all of it. And then Jesus says, come. If you're weary, if you're burdened. So that at chapter 12, you begin to see now this opposition has not only been formed, it has become hardened. And, and there are reasons for it. So when we come to chapter 12, it's very interesting that, that Matthew chooses to use these areas of conflicts. They're Sabbath conflicts. They have to do with an understanding of the Lord's Day that Jesus just kind of played, in their minds, fast and loose with. And it erupts to a level where not only are they beginning to have their... Opinions coalesce together and form and harden, but not just harden, it now becomes red hot with anger. Enough to murder Jesus. If you look at chapter 12, verse 14, after these incidents, after these, these reasons now that really rile them up, it says, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. I just want you to think for a second, what gets you really, really angry to the point of rage? Really ticks you off. They're ticked off. They're rageful. Usually it's something that so threatens that which you are committed to. You are so invested in that if it's taken from you, you're actually bankrupt at some level. You are so as you look at it, your life, your actual life is so founded on it that with it being removed, all fear rises up in you and fear usually moves right to anger and anger leads to, i got to get rid of it. And that's where we're at. So let's look at Matthew 12, verse, if we would, these first few verses. It says at that time, and again, as we've been talking, Jesus, uh, Matthew uses these connectives as kind of a general chronological order. But here he starts to kind of come back to Mark's order, where he had left off at one point. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. You just see they're walking along and they're talking and they're picking these heads of grain, they're eating them as they're talking. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, you have to understand the issue here about breaking Sabbath laws. The Jewish rules of conduct about the Sabbath were extremely detailed. And even one of their own commentators, prior to Jesus 
coming. One of their own commentators in the Old Testament times said, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for the teaching of Scripture thereon is scanty and the rules are many. It's as if they have taken this hair and, and hung this huge system of laws of what it means to follow God and understand his affirmation. So for many Jews of the day, the Sabbath was really a joyful festival, a sign of God's covenant. There were really good things. It was a reminder of the divine pattern of creation. Six days and the seventh he rested. And provided the rules were obeyed, that's, that's the key thing, and provided the rules were obeyed, it was a means of meriting favor before God. It was a way of saying, God, look what I've done. I, you know, every Sabbath, I just do these things and I follow all these laws meticulously and you must be really proud of me. You must really accept me and think this is a good thing. And herein lies the problem. Whenever we make our relationship with God about rules rather than about relationship based on this word that you read in the word of God, kessed, loving kindness, the kind of thing that Jesus was coming back, whenever you... Make your relationships about a bunch of rules, whether it's with God or with the people you're living with, you're in trouble. It's funny, too, because when you start making your relationship about, with God or even about with others about, with, with, with regard to rules, what eventually happens, you'll feel either quite insecure or quite secure based on how well you're doing the rules. And you're always left in a comparison state. That's, that's, the, that's the form of a rule-based relationship is you always kind of go, but look at him better than, than so-and-so's husband, right? It's not the point. The point is the kind of relation that builds trust where you're lovingly sacrificing and learning how to meet one another's needs in a way that it really fulfills each other's hearts. And so in Israel during Christ's day, there were all kinds of interpretations on the Sabbath keeping. Some Pharisees were stricter actually than others. There were a number of different schools and some were strict and some weren't. The most strict school was the Qumran covenants. And you'll re hear that from the Qumran scrolls. It was a group with the strictest bunch of rules, so much so that in order to live life so that they didn't break rules unnecessarily, they actually isolated themselves in the southern part of Israel and became this little community, somewhat like the Amish do. And whenever a, a community of people base their relationship on one another and with God on rules, what you have to do is begin to continue to isolate yourself and move yourself away from the common culture. Because the common culture is going to mess that up. It makes things gray. And so if you, if you really want to race, you, you know, base your relationship on rules, you, you want to keep moving back further away so it's easier, so your culture becomes a subculture, somehow whether it's isolated or whether you isolate yourself. And as you begin to do that, it's all about black and whites, and it's all about feeling really secure because you're doing it right and feeling better than others. And awful times feeling shame because someone could be in your community doing it better. Well, here's the story. It's the Sabbath, and Jesus and his disciples are on a Sunday stroll. They're near the road, probably on a path. They're, they're grabbing some heads of grain, they're eating in. And all this was permissible according to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and 25. You could actually reap grain with your hands. The idea was you're not to take a sickle. You can get a, you know, an afternoon snack while you're walking, but don't take a sickle and, and get next week's meals. And so they're walking along and they're having their afternoon snack. 
And the Sabbath police happen to be staked out on the road. The radar hits the red zone and they're going, work, work. The religious cops are there. And there's been a violation of the interpretation of the law. So when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Here's the violation. It's found in Exodus 34:21. Here's what it states. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season and the harvest you must rest. That's what they based, the hair that they based this law upon. And why this command? God sets up these principles for, for our life out of love. This is not some command that we do so that when we do it, God looks down and he goes, boy, you're really good today. I'm really, I mean, I love you more. He says, I give you these so that you might experience even more what life means and what it's supposed to be. And the reason God does this is because he's so aware that we are susceptible to fears and drives that will drive us to the point of anxiety and exhaustion. And so he, he out of love, knows that we, needs, we need rest. And so in order um, that we don't let our unmet needs drive us to work 24-7, in order that we don't let our lack of trust, even when we're out of a job or we're in a situation where our income seems to be going down, we don't let our lack of trust move us to a place where we become anxiously so caught up that will God provide that we don't become so compulsive in our doing that we lose what it means to be. That God, out of deep love, sets up a Sabbath and says, Folks, would you at least one day out of seven consider pausing? It's kind of life's pause button. Because I love you so much. Not because I'm trying to take away your fun and, and trying to make you go to church. That's not about what God is. God is says, you know, seven, at least one day out of the week would you pause and reflect and, and, and realize and, and give praise and thanks for all that you do have. And all that I am and all that I will provide. But here's the kind of world that Jesus stepped into. It was full of religious people telling people that the Sabbath was, was not about God's love and that it was created for you, but you were, in a sense, created to follow it. It was full of religious people telling the people that the Sabbath was just another rule that God wanted them to follow in order to be accepted by him. It was another way to measure up and to earn God's love by one's goodness and the ability to keep the rules. And again, as I said, the problem is if your relationship is about rules, you can't have gray areas. Everything has to become black and white. So that's what happened here. In order to make sure these Pharisees and the religious groups of that day, that it was clear how to live before God by rules, you, you, had, to, you had to devise a system of one law so that you have like a Sabbath section. Under the Sabbath section, you'll have one under reaping, one under healing, and then you'll have code violations. So that you can live your life. Which is, isn't it? We should all have one of these. We laugh, but we do. Because our flesh, our desire, our, our natural hunger is for that. Because then when we can do that, we're in control and we can feel proud about it. And we can, as it says in the Word of God, boast. And God says, those who come to Him have nothing to boast in. So the rules are out. So now you have to learn to live in a, a direct, responsive relationship where you hear from the Holy Spirit. You begin to understand God's Word, applying it as Jesus directs you, guided by a community of faith, not told by the community of faith what to do. 
And so in order to make sure everyone was clear, they had a rule for every situation. The disciples had actually violated the Sabbath law under the section entitled reaping. There were 39 kinds of work listed that were forbidden on the Sabbath under the category of reaping. And Jesus, as a rabbi, should have known that. So Jesus, the rabbi, answers as a rabbi would in verses 3 through 8. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are still innocent? They're still guiltless? And I tell you, it's one of Jesus' statements, pay attention that one greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not, you can underline these words, you would have not condemned the innocent. He's not talking about three and four year old, five year old kids. He's talking about 30, 40 year old disciples, followers, fishermen, tax collectors who are walking along eating grain. They were innocent. Jesus uses this method. It's it's very common in rabbinic arguments where it's a a counter question, then an appeal to scripture. That's what he does in these verses. And he appeals to a story found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 5 through 6, which is the story of David when he's running away from King Saul. And as he's running from King Saul with some of his men, he's exhausted and, and they're, they're hungry. And they, and they come to the house of God, which was the tabernacle, which happened to be in a city called Nob at that time. It was just, a, just south of Jerusalem. And, and they run in there and the priests were actually, it must have been the Sabbath because the priests had just changed the showbread or the bread of presence that would be brought before God in a sense symbolically of, of here we are, God, here's what we give this to, to um, praise you and, and to recognize what you have given us. And, 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 and they came in and the priests saw it and they took the bread and you ever ate warm bread just out of the oven? They took the bread and got some butter. No, I don't know if they did that. But maybe had some oil. And they ate it. And Jesus goes on to make this point. There appears to be two contradictory statements here in Scripture. On the one hand, David ate, and on the other hand, it was unlawful unlawful for him to do it. There's two seems to be contradictory things. Jesus is not simply stating that in this case, Scripture allows an exception. This is not the point, that because they were hungry, they did it. Because in this case, they were hungry, David's case. In the other case, the disciples were just stacking. They could have held off. So he's not making exception. The Scriptures, he, he, he points to this in order to show them that the Scriptures do not condemn David for his action. Therefore, the rigidity of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, the the hair on which it hangs, is broken. It's not in line with Scripture itself. A very rabbinic way of teaching. In essence, Jesus is saying, you are making the Old Testament say something it doesn't. You are putting words in the mouth of God. And Jesus is merely showing how ludicrous their law-keeping had become. And you just contrast the two. Disciples of Jesus were hungry and ate, but not starved, unlike David's men who were famished and weak and needed to eat. David, out of necessity, was clearly breaking the law, which Scripture doesn't condemn. And on the other hand, it's not even clear 
how the disciples were breaking any Old Testament law where the commandments about the Sabbath were aimed really at regular work, not at snacks. And so Jesus uses this story not merely to, to question the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath. Rather, Jesus is questioning their whole approach to the law, their entire approach to how they come to Scripture, which is a great time to ask. What's your approach to Scripture? Is it some kind of law book that helps you live in such a way that when you live that way, you think God's going to love you more? It's, it's so easy to do. I mean, our flesh is attracted to that. And by flesh, I mean our natural self. We don't just do it with God. We do it with other people. Our work environment sets us up for that. When we, when we work, so if you work, you get a reward. Your school environment sets you up for so you work, you get a reward. There is a sense that when you do good, you, know, you do it for goodness sake, good will usually occur. That's the idea. But you don't do it for that sake. You do it out of your heart because it's right and it's loving. So the surface appears to be a conflict over the Sabbath when we look at the Scripture, but it really wasn't the real issue. The rejection, the reason for the rejection wasn't really the Sabbath. It was really about their whole interpretation approach to God's Word. And now what I think is really interesting as you go through here, Jesus begins to take these rules which they had based their life on and their foundation upon, their life of measuring up and, 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 and being so secure in what they've done so they can compare themselves to all these sinners and tax collectors and rotten people. And he begins to take a sledgehammer to that foundation. Now you know why they're angry. This isn't just some little law they've broken. This is their whole life before God. This is the whole system they've built. It's all going to be going to waste. Jesus is leading a revolution that will wipe out all that they've worked for. And they're mad. So the second argument, if you look at chapter 12, verse 5 through 8, is really interesting. And only Matthew includes this. And I think maybe because his gospel was written to either convert Jews or to encourage Jews who were Christians, followers of Christ, in their walk with him. Formally speaking, in this passage of Scripture, verse 5, the Levitical priests broke the Sabbath law because they had to do the work of worship on a day of Sabbath in the temple. And in doing so, they were guiltless. So here's how Jesus applies this. He again uses this well-known rabbinic argument, a different kind this time. He moves from what he calls, the, the argument is called the light to the weighty, to, from something lighter to something heavier. And so if you read verses 5 and 6, or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is simply saying, God's presence in the temple is a big deal. And God, through Moses, in established the law, and the authority of the law and the, in, the, in the presence of God in his people guided people based on his presence being there. But now a greater authority has come that houses the presence of God. That's, that's what he says. I tell you that one greater than the temple that, that houses the presence of God. There is a temple that's standing right before your eyes that houses the presence of God far greater than that. And Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, he's just referred to David, the son of man, God's anointed, 
is ushering in an age where the presence of God will enter the hearts of any person who comes to him, receiving him, and he will write his law on their hearts, and on their hearts they will be guided by it, and the only one they were called the foul is Jesus, just Jesus. So just as there was provision in the law for the priests in the temple, now there is provision, says Jesus, for my disciples and every follower of me in any land. They are the new priests. And they go out into this world, not with a code book of laws, but with the law of God that comes from Jesus, which is the law of love written on their hearts, so that now when they look at things in life, and it's gray, they look at it and they recognize it's not a matter of if I do this or that, God, will you accept me or not? It's more a matter of is this the loving and the right thing to do in this situation? It's a whole different way of living. It's called the kind of life that is, is very free and easy. And, and it's the kind of one that Jesus said, come to me because you won't be burdened with this law book where you're always constantly wondering and you're always worried about what so-and-so is going to say because you're not measuring up. It's this kind of life that looks before God and says, God, thank you that you have established yourself in my heart. And because you've established yourself in my heart, you promise you'll never let me go. And your Holy Spirit will begin to live in me and will begin to conform me and begin to make me like your son, Jesus. And I'm going to blow it and I'm going to do things wrong. But I know that this love has got so a hold of me that I'm going to walk fuller and more freely into it. And I'm going to do that with a whole group of people who want to walk the same way. And we're going to get out of this whole kind of situation and system that your whole life is based on whether you think someone else thinks you're doing it right what a horrible way to live and jesus calls him and says i've written this on your heart so don't you see the presence of this temple of god is before you and there is a new law and this law doesn't obliterate these laws but it does cut the hair on all these interpretations for these gray areas that you're trying to make black and white i want you to live in the gray. I don't want you to isolate yourself from the people you work with. I don't want you to isolate yourself from the people you stand on the sidelines with you who have kids in, in sports. What a wonderful time in life. I love that. I don't want you to become a Qumran community that, that, that basically needs to isolate itself so that you can live out your black and white laws. I want you to be salt to penetrate this society. I want you to be light. And I want you to do it in such a way that the love of God flows through you. So just as there's that provision, God gives the law and writes it in our hearts. The law which God had been trying to make clear from the first day, he used his finger to draw on some granite tablets when he handed them to Moses. It's the same law that the prophets spoke about. It's the law that Jesus points to here, summed up by Hosea. Here is the essence of the law. I desire mercy. The word kesed. A new kind of relationship. And Jesus pulls no punches with his conclusion in quoting Hosea. And he's saying in front of everyone, you guys who think you know so much, have missed the main point. You have not grasped the significance of the law. God desires mercy, not all your sacrificial rule-keeping. He wants a life that lives in mercy under His eye, and He wants a life that gives mercy through your eyes to others. And here's the clincher. He says, if you got this truth right, if you really understood God's Word, if you really knew God's heart, you would not have condemned the innocent. 
Think about it. Just a couple of application questions I want you to think about for a second. How often do you condemn the innocent with your laws and your interpretation of what it is? That, that takes real work. That takes work for you to examine the, the kind of culture and community that you came out of and what really is right and what really isn't. I had the, you know, these experiences when I was a kid. It's just Kids are really honest. They, they'll look at your as parents and they'll call things out, right? One of the wonderful things about being multi-generational is that those who are in their youth will look at some of the things we're doing and go, I don't quite get it. I think when I was a kid, I was in middle school, I was in Rockford, Illinois. My father was a pastor of this church, a large church that had been founded in the, I think in the 1900s, early 1900s, whatever. And at that time in ministry, like in the 70s, it was, it was not kosher to have facial hair. It was, you were less than spiritual if you had facial hair. I look at some of you guys and I realize you got facial hair. Well, what really confused me is I would go down to the basement where they had the hall of pictures, and one of the pictures were of all the founding leaders of that church. And on that picture were a bunch of men with beards and mustaches. I could only conclude a couple things. Either the church had become so spiritual that those guys were so immature, or this is so confusing, what is this all about? How often do you, how often do I, condemn the innocent? And we're talking about kids here. We're talking 30, 40-year-old people who were fishermen and tax collectors in and, and, and all walks of life. How often, let me ask you another question, do you protect the innocent? Those who criticize and condemn. Matthew concludes with one Sabbath conflict. You've got to read this last part here. This is the one that stokes the fire of rages within their heart. Look at verses 9 and 10. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Again, the religious cops are out to trap Jesus, and they are now looking for a reason to accuse. They just want to get Jesus. And I have to say, every church has religious cops. And I think some churches are so full of them, they're actually religious police academies. They really are. They're law enforcement centers. At that point, the Pharisees aren't just looking for a reason to issue and a warrant for Jesus' arrest. They're actually beginning now to move to an order of execution. And they're still under the section called Sabbath laws, and they're, they're looking along. And it's not, no, they're not looking at the reaping code now. They're looking at the healing code violation, and they're, they're looking at this. Okay, that must be code one, two, three, two. And, and they get it. And Jesus, again, uses the rabbinic argument, the lesser to greater. He said to them, if any of you have sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And it almost seems foolish when you read this. These were rules that you could care for farm animals, but when it came to people, you couldn't do good to them. In fact, what I think is really interesting, here's a guy with a withered hand. He's sitting in church like this, and Jesus is looking out, and Jesus maybe has just read the Scripture and maybe said some words, and, and, and they have this question-answer time, which we don't allow here because I could never answer all your good questions. But anyway... Um, they do in, in, in a synagogue kind of rabbinic situation, and they would ask the question. And so one of the hands shot up, one of the religious cops shot up with his hand and looked at this one, and he says, you know, we've got a question here, Jesus. 
It's not a life and death situation. What about a person like this guy with the withered hand? Can you imagine this? And, and can you heal him? Now, Jesus could have been nice, because I think this is what we often do with, with churches. When we start pressing into the whole matter of grace, we start feeling sorry for people, and we start looking at this. And Jesus could have been nice. He could have shaken, you know, the, he could have decided not to shake the religious boat at that moment. He could have, in his own heart, in his own mind, recognized they had grown up under the law. They had grown up under a different era. He could have easily just said, you know, I could heal this guy tomorrow. I could just find out where he lives today and I'll do it tomorrow. But he doesn't. He actually does something that's so in their face because he so wants people to live by grace. God is so concerned that Paul even said, if a person, even if an angel came and preached something that was different than this, what did he say? He told him, let me eternally cut off from God. And so Jesus looks around in anger, because he asked them this question about the sheep. He's trying to get them to, to look at the lesser and look at the weighty. He's waiting for them to say, of course you should heal his hand. Even though it's not a life and death thing, it's a good thing. And Jesus looks around and they're quiet. No one says a thing. They are so stubbornly proud. They will not engage. They continue to complain. They stand on the outside and criticize. They get angrier and angrier until they come to the point where they've got to do we've got to get rid of And it says Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And both Matthew and Mark record this now in verse 13 and 14. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Our relationship with God the Father is just Jesus. It is Jesus plus nothing. It is in a relationship with Him where He, through His Holy Spirit, who He has given us and given us the law of love, who through His Word, and we have more of His Word available than they ever did in the first century. Through His Word and through a community of grace where we lovingly guide people to do what is loving and right. We live in this world where there is gray. We live in this world rather than apart from it in that sense. In order that we might allow all people to know that we have this incredible loving God who has saved us from ourselves and sin. Folks, we are on mission here. And our mission is to help all people take their next step to know and to follow Jesus, just Jesus. And we're out to change the world. This is not about some little community in, 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 in Wyzetta. This is about a community that has the power of God to impact the world with a message of grace. And He is going to do that with every heart that says, I want this. And if you're here this morning and you're going, I have been so tired and so weary. I have tried to measure up so hard. I have done everything I can. God is saying to you through Jesus Christ right now, come to me, you who are weary, you who are burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. You can rest in the fact that you can know me and you can walk with me and you can experience my love. Now, I'm just going to close with this. I had an opportunity. I was meeting with someone for lunch and they were sharing with me that uh, one of the reasons they chose to have their um, child play for Wyzetta, I think, is because Ter- is it Terry Steinbach, who is uh, one of the coaches for the baseball team there? Former, you know, major league player. What I think is really interesting about that is we forget the fact, folks, that we don't live helplessly. We don't have a Terry Steinbach. You know, if you're thinking about finances and Warren Buffett, you can name all the names. We have Jesus.
to guide each and every one of us and to lead us into what it means to truly follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Help us to do this incredibly difficult thing that it's not humanly possible. It is a divine work of God. And so I ask the divine work of God, the Holy Spirit, to come now, that you would fill this body and this church. And I speak in this sense, Father, in this day, from this day forward, God, that you would begin to move with such grace among your people, that, God, we would be so overflowing with the love of God that the holiness of our Father in heaven would come. On this day of repentance, we repent of our sin. We recognize we need you, and we stand before you. So let's stand together. Let's stand together. We stand before you, and we give ourselves to you as one voice and one people.